On Lectures in History, University of Washington professor William Rohrbaugh teaches a class on the counterculture of the 1950s and 60s in America. He compares the literature, clothing, music, and worldview of the beats and beatniks of the 50s and the hippies of the 1960s. He also talks about the spread of LSD and the prevalence of drugs in hippie culture. This class is about 55 minutes. Okay, so uh, today we're going to talk about the counterculture, which in many ways people have associated with you know, the 1960s as one of the major uh, aspects of the 1960s. Uh, one can say that uh, of the decade of the 60s that you know, radical politics uh, clearly failed and faded away, and social change bumped up against what you might call certain limitations. It's true that race relations changed, and official white supremacy, you know, legal segregation, uh, disappeared, and Americans certainly became more tolerant. But race did not disappear as a fact in American life, which many liberals in the 1950s and 60s had thought that it would, or hoped that it would. Gender relations also changed, and women assumed new responsibilities and new roles. But women and men also came to realize that the differences between women and men had not been repealed by simply declaring that women and men were equal. And women and men wouldn't necessarily see things the same way. The greatest changes that took place during and after the 60s clearly were cultural changes. And a lot of those changes had to do with the counterculture. You know, the word counterculture was actually invented by a sociologist and means, you know, an opposite culture, a culture opposite the mainstream culture. Unlike the political and social challenges, the cultural challenges tended to stick Americans really did change cultural values and cultural practices in the 70s and 80s and beyond, not so much in the 60s. The, the counterculture of the 60s is beginning a long-term movement. So the counterculture of the 1960s begins uh, with political change, or, or the attempt to have political change, and that fails, and then social change, which also uh, takes place in terms of race and gender, but doesn't entirely succeed. Uh, Cultural change, however, is really what is the legacy of the 60s, and the counterculture had a lot to do with that. A sociologist defined, created the word counterculture and created it to describe a culture that was opposite mainstream culture. Not everyone, of course, adopted the same ideas or the same habits, but enough people over time in the 70s, 80s, and 90s came to adopt new ideas and new habits so that the whole culture could be said to have changed as a result. And so I'm going to talk about that whole process today, the legacy of the 60s, you might say. I want to start, though, by going back to the Beats and the Beatniks. The first post-war critics of American society and culture had, of course, been the Beats. Uh, they were criticizing America in the aftermath of World War II. The Beats had wanted to create a revolution in expectations. The Beats, the original Beat writers, Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and their friends, believed that American society was very repressive, and especially sexually repressive. In advocating hedonism, they were partly trying to make space for their own self-indulgence, especially homosexual self-indulgence. But when the Beats became celebrities in the late 1950s, traditional American culture was very unsure of itself. It was at one of those cultural moments where the traditional values were under attack, and traditionalists were not really very defensive about those traditional practices. They were feeling uncomfortable. The original Beats had been a very small number of writers and their friends. And the followers of the Beats in the late 50s, after Kerouac and Ginsburg became very 
popular and Kerouac sold millions of copies of On the Road, uh, the young followers of the Beats were clearly a different generation because whereas the Beats had experienced World War II as veterans of the war or people who came of age right after the war, the people who came of age in the late 1950s were clearly a different generation, having been born either during the war or even perhaps slightly after the war. And this new group became known as Beatniks. Like the Beats, the Beatniks dressed in secondhand clothes, wore a lot of black clothing, expressed a depressed view of life. Everything is rotten, everything is hopeless, wild in despair, kind of voluntary homelessness was an example of this, and joblessness. Oh, jobs were a terrible idea. Many of them lived in New York City, in Greenwich Village, or in San Francisco, in North Beach, which became kind of the two beatnik hangouts uh, in the United States. Tourists flocked to those districts in order to see real, live beatniks. I mean, this is actually you know, what people did. They went and gawked to look at people, right? I think, well, people are always looking at people, one way or another. And indeed, some of the more amusing things in the late 50s, uh, there were local suburbanites who would dress up like beatniks on the weekend and go into Greenwich Village or uh, into North Beach and pretend to be you know, a beatnik. Uh, of course, you could always tell uh, that they weren't dressed quite right. <laughs> they didn't quite have the right hair that a real beatnik would have. But they could party in the beatnik bars uh, in the village or in North Beach. And they were sometimes referred to as weekend beatniks <laughs> because of the way they you know, did this. And they, of course, had real jobs. Now, you could tell a real beatnik man from a weekend beatnik very easily because real beatnik men had long hair and beards. And that was proof in the 1950s that you did not have a regular job because no employer would hire anybody with a beard or with long hair. And indeed, you would be fired if you had a beard or long hair. So clearly, you know, this is how writers, of course, or artists could you know, separate themselves since they were self-employed. But unless you were self-employed, you really couldn't do this. You know. And you didn't see very many beards as a result, of course. Real beatnik women wore their hair very long as well. Beatniks, both men and women, wore sandals made out of old rubber tires that came from Mexico. They, did not, they were very cheap, really cheap. I think about you know, 29 cents for a pair of sandals. Uh, they did not take very many showers. They thought that deodorant was a capitalist plot. <laughs> Maybe deodorant is a capitalist plot. I don't know. <laughs> Beatniks were so exciting to some of the avant-garde in New York City that you could actually rent a beatnik. You know, I'm not making this up. Uh, the advertisements appeared in the Village Voice, uh, which was kind of the counterculture uh, newspaper in New York. And you could rent a beatnik. You could you know, dial up and for your very upscale uh, party on Fifth Avenue uh, in your fancy apartment, uh, co-op or whatever, you could uh, have a, a long-haired, bearded beatnik come to the party and be the center of attention. <laughs> this is very strange, I think, but it was actually going on in the late 50s. Now, the beatniks, like the beats, liked jazz, and read poetry aloud. Indeed, it was actually the Beats in San Francisco who had more or less invented reading poetry out loud. That was a new idea. Uh, they read a lot of odd books that were carried in Beat or Beatnik bookstores, uh, particularly the 8th Street Bookshop in Greenwich Village and Lawrence Ferlinghetti's City Lights Bookstore in North Beach in San Francisco. Ferlinghetti was also a poet as well as a bookstore owner. Uh, you could buy radical political books 
or self-printed poetry books or foreign language publications in these stores. Uh, many of the books that were sold in these stores, most of them were in paperback, which was also a new idea. Uh, most books that were published in the United States were not published in paperback in the late 1950s. Paperbacks were very unusual and very rare. Bookstores didn't like to uh, sell them because they didn't make as much profit as they did on the hardbacks. <laughs> it was as simple as that. Uh, and so here was a new idea that was spreading, the paperback book, which was much cheaper, therefore easier, uh, easier to carry around, too. Uh, so that's one change that's going on. Now, at the same time, just to show that the beats aren't the only source of what becomes the counterculture, there's also the avant-garde. And the avant-garde is a small group of people who challenged, again, challenged mainstream culture, but not from a beatnik point of view, from a different uh, angle of vision. Uh, one of the examples of this, one of the earliest ones uh, in New York, uh, actually are Julian and Malvina Beck, uh, who opened the Living Theater in New York in 1951. And, you know, it's important, I suppose, that it's that early. Uh, the Becks were anarchists, and the purpose of their theater was to jar the audience and get them to step outside of their mainstream cultural values and maybe embrace anarchism, but if not that, at least challenge the cultural norms of the 1950s. They performed only radical new plays in small spaces uh, that were cheap to rent and had very few props and no scenery ever. And their theater company attempted to engage the audience in the event. So their, their theory of theater was actually quite different and quite radical. The, the, the separation between the audience and the performers was to be minimized and indeed reduced to nothing, if at all possible. Theater was not performed by actors for the audience. Rather, the actors were supposed to push the audience past the limits that had been set by traditional culture, and, which was obsessed with setting limits, especially for public performances. And so one can see there's one of the plays that they managed to film, one of their later plays in 1963, uh, called The Brig, uh, which is set in, uh, inside a U.S. Marine Corps prison, uh, although I think the hidden subtext of this play is actually the, the uh, German concentration camps, if you uh, look at the play. You can, you can see the video. It's available if you want to watch it, if you can stand to watch it. Uh, it's one thing to watch it, however, on a television set at home. It's another thing to have actually been in the live performance. It must have been quite excruciating to actually reenact, you know, see this going on right, you know, three feet away from you in the theater. Uh, would the audience, and this is the question the, the Brig asked, would the audience identify with the guards or with the abused prisoners who spend the entire time of the performance of the play, which has no intermission, of course, uh, being abused by the guards? Uh, or would the audience perhaps uh, end up uh, sympathizing a little bit with each? Th that very question would challenge the audience in about, you know, where do you stand? Are you standing with authority, the guards, or are you standing with the victims of authority, the prisoners? You know? uh, that's a good question to ask, especially if you're an anarchist, right? <laughs> uh, or what would, ha uh, what would happen in another play, you know, the, the Becks decided they would challenge questions about nudity. What if the actors performed in the nude? That would be a shocking idea in the 1950s. It would also be illegal. <laughs> and indeed, what would the New York City police do? Would they stop the performance and arrest the actors? Would they actually arrest the audience members as well for being at a nude performance? Uh, 
you know, this could be challenging and this could be sort of interesting. And if you were a member of the audience, you might be a little bit nervous about being arrested and having your name in the New York Times the next day. So there's a lot going on there in these performances. And all during the 50s, the Living Theater provoked its audiences, uh, which were partly composed of other avant-garde artists, partly composed of beatniks, uh, although they rarely had the money for tickets, so they often had to you know, get tickets given to them by somebody else and partly composed of respectable middle-class people who were bored with the stodginess of American culture and maybe especially turned off by the sitcoms on TV. (laughs) Another change that went on at the same time is performance art. This is a redefinition of art. Uh, Art had traditionally been thought of as perhaps uh, painting or sculpture, but it was pres- or photography, I suppose, but it, it was something that the artist did and then presented to the audience as a finished product. But in performance art, there's an action that takes place, and the action is the art. So the art takes place in front of the audience and involves the audience. And you can see the relationship between the living theater and performance art. The two are connected together. In the 1950s, uh, the avant-garde poet and classical music composer Ned Roram wrote a four-minute piece in which the performers played not a single note. Now, this was certainly taking music to the ultimate, what, absurdity? (laughs) The performers are on the stage and they sit there with their instruments and do absolutely nothing for four minutes. It was a very interesting score, and the performers have to keep turning the pages of the score. That's the only thing they do. They never make a sound. The audience, of course, at the first performance was not in on the joke. Of course, after the first performance, people might know what was going on. And as the musicians were sitting on the stage, turning their pages uh, motionless, the audience was becoming increasingly restive and uncomfortable and wondering, whispering to each other, what's going on? Am I missing something? And there were whispers, and then wheezes, and finally coughs, and, you know. And, of course, that's the music. (laughs) The music is the audience making all these gasping sounds uh, and whispering. And that is the music. That's the performance. The performance has been shifted from the stage to the actual audience. That's what Roram was trying to do. That's what, that was his purpose in this. And you'll notice that every time the play, the piece, the musical piece is performed, before a different audience, it's going to have a different result, right? So no, no two performances will ever be exactly the same. And that's also part of what Roram was trying to achieve. The performers, in other words, were only catalysts that were designed to bring the audience together as an audience, as a group, in the, in the session where the, this was all taking place. And Roram went on to collaborate in other performance art pieces later on with the avant where he actually did compose real music, uh, with the avant-garde artist Robert Rauschenberg. Rauschenberg later became a famous uh, artist of the period. Robert Rauschenberg might paint spontaneous paintings on the stage using Roram's background uh, musical riffs uh, for motivation. So you had the intersection of music and visual art going on by having a musical composer having composed music that would stimulate or inspire the production of the artwork. Uh, 
Rauschenberg would try to put onto canvas the feelings that he felt were being conveyed by listening to Rohrm's music, just like the audience was listening at that very moment. Performance art could be even more interactive. What if the actors arrive nude, or given the fact they didn't want to be arrested by the New York City police, uh, semi-nude, and rolled on the floor in heaps of embracing bodies? Uh, What does this convey uh, about people? Uh, What does this mean? Is this uh, perhaps saying something about the oneness of humanity? Or maybe it's just people rolling around on the floor, you know? What if the audience is then invited to join in the rolling on the floor? What is that going to do, you know? And uh, do members of the audience, the audience members have to make a decision at that point, don't they? Are they a separate audience watching what is going on, or are they participants in the process? And how much participation do they want to have? Do they want to engage in this or not? So this is really, again, putting, it's shifting everything onto the audience, away from the performers. And what if the floor had been covered with butcher paper and then spewed with fresh paint so that all the rolling bodies on the floor are then covered with paint? And what if the rolling bodies then covering with this wet paint, then rolling around even more, begin to randomly paint the butcher paper by moving around in this way? The resultant painted paper might, at the end of the performance, be cut up into one-foot squares and then passed out to members of the audience to take home as abstract paintings. (laughs) So you thought you were going to a performance, you end up with a painting to take home, right? Very weird, very weird, right? So this is the kind of stuff that's going on, particularly in New York, in in Greenwich Village. Now, one of the leading performance artists uh, in Greenwich Village was Yoko Ono. Of course, Yoko Ono was better known as later marrying John Lennon, you know, of the Beatles. But Yoko Ono staged an avant-garde performance in her loft in New York in 1961. She was a creative avant-garde artist, is what she was before she married a creative avant-garde musician, John Lennon. She had the entire apartment fixed with a floor set at a 30-degree angle. Now, that's really steep, you know, 30 degrees. That's about as steep as you can get and actually still... Uh, walk on it. Uh, It depends on whether you've got slippery shoes, I suppose. Uh, She then invited New York's leading avant-garde dancers to stage a dance on this steeply sloped floor. And of course, they didn't know this. They knew they were coming to her loft in order to stage a dance, but she didn't tell them about the floor. So they only found out about this when they got there, right? The dancers had never encountered such a floor before, And their attempt to perform at this angle revealed all sorts of interesting things to them about their own bodies, their psychological states. They were, you know, afraid of falling, and it showed. I mean, dancers would normally perhaps have a little fear of falling, but they're so practiced in their routines and their, you know, discipline to overcome that, so the audience never sees that fear. But, of course, in this situation, the audience, who also had to stand on the 30-degree slope, would be seeing this as well. And it also revealed something about the will of the performers. You know, people really were, you know, if they had a strong enough will, they could do it. But if they gave up, well, they would just end up sliding down the floor to the, you know, the end of the room, right? That's what, where they would end up. And as the performance continued, the audience could see and the performers came to realize that they had gradually adjusted their movements and their plans according to the slope floor. So the slope floor actually was causing people to behave differently. It was a physical fact, and it was interfering with the production 
and interfering with the assumptions about what people could do or couldn't do. Human beings, in other words, had to adapt. And that, of course, was Yoko Ono's whole point. That was the whole point of the evening, was to get everyone who left, performers and audience alike, to realize that human beings needed to adapt. They needed to change. They needed to change the way they thought about things. They needed to change the way they behaved in the world. Yoko Ono had grown up in Tokyo, and she had lived in this very traditional and repressed uh, Japanese uh, culture, which was especially uh, unfavorable to bright, talented young women like her. Uh, there was very little of a role that she could imagine for herself in Tokyo. Uh, she could marry some banker or something like that, I suppose, but that was about it. She certainly could not be a performing artist of any kind uh, and retain the class status that, you know, that she had. Uh, so she ended up in New York City because she found it much freer than Tokyo. And she still, of course, criticized the culture in the United States for being rigid and repressive as well, but she recognized that it was not nearly as rigid and repressive as the culture in Japan. And she wanted everyone to understand that cultural change was hard. After all, she had had to undergo the cultural change of being a Japanese woman to being an American, and that was a big change for her. And she was now trying to pass that information on through her performance art uh, in New York City and you know, open the eyes of other people uh, that, so that they could see that they too could make changes in their own lives. You'll notice that all of this uh, avant-garde art is about making cha you know, changing yourself, ultimately. The performers are stimulating the audience to change themselves. One of the most interesting examples of all this comes from the Judson Dance Company. In 1963, it was founded in the basement of an avant-garde Baptist church, if you can imagine that, but there was an avant-garde Baptist church in Greenwich, where else? Greenwich Village. Uh, it was a church that had originally been founded to help sailors who uh, came into the port of New York, uh, but it had become an avant-garde uh, church uh, in, by the 1950s. And the Judson Dance Company practiced and performed in the basement of the church and developed what really became modern dance. While background music might provide some sense of rhythm or timing, the emphasis of modern dance was on the celebration of the human body. Dancers wore tight-fitting clothes uh, to emphasize physicality, and dance motions were tightly controlled and quite athletic. I mean, I sometimes think that if you see, you know, uh, Dancing with the Stars on television, you've seen, you know, the, this is where it ended up with commercialization, of course, but that's the kind of dance that the Judson Dance Company was doing in 1963. Sometimes the dances seemed more like gymnastics than dance. Still, there were many romantic or sexually suggestive aspects to the Judson Dance Company's performances, and they celebrated sexuality as part of the celebration of the body. This, of course, contrasted with traditional middle-class American values, which held that sex was never to be discussed in public, and certainly not in audiences that were composed of both men and women. And sex was best left for the privacy of the bedroom. That was the, mainstream, the mainstream culture of the, of the 50s. By the end of the 1960s, the celebration of the body would take on a uh, much more open form than having a dance company in the basement of, 
of a church building in, in Greenwich Village. There would be two major Broadway plays that included previously prohibited onstage nudity. The first of these, O Calcutta, had an exceptionally wrong run, and every night the entire cast disrobed for one scene. Audiences, that is local New Yorkers, kept bringing back out-of-town relatives to shock them. (laughs) And O Calcutta could not have been put on in St. Louis or Boston or other more conservative parts of the United States. I mean, it simply wouldn't have been allowed. But by the late 60s, you could do this in New York City, and the police didn't arrest the cast. The other play, the one that perhaps is more famous and certainly more identified with the counterculture, is Hair. Hair was about a mindless, long-haired hippie who was drafted and then sent to Vietnam and killed. Hare also had one brief nude scene that celebrated the body, and so it too participated in this new celebration of the body, which is part of the whole hippie consciousness. And you'll notice that I didn't entitle the entire lecture hippies, but counterculture, because the counterculture includes hippies, but hippies are not the entire counterculture, and that's the point. So now we're on to hippies. The counterculture is most commonly identified with the word hippies, and certainly there is a, cer- there is a certain truth uh, in that, but the counterculture, as I said, is broader than that. It includes many people who were not or would not have been identified as hippies, including the Beats and the avant-garde. The Beat poet Gary Snyder put the matter about hippies very succinctly when he wrote, quote, the hippies were living out the philosophy that the Beats proclaimed. So that's how Snyder saw the connection between the two. What was the relationship between Beats and hippies? Well, first, there was a major age difference. The Beats had been in their 20s during World War II. The hippies had been in their 20s in about 1960. The hippies were being born in about 1945 or 1948, somewhere in there. Hippies were young enough to have been the children of the Beats, if the Beats had had any children, which was not very likely. The Beats were despairing veterans of the Great Depression and World War II, the Holocaust, and the Atomic Age. The hippies were the optimistic children of the baby boom generation and the rising affluence of the post-war consumer boom. And that said a lot about the difference between the two groups, the fact that the one had come, had been raised amid the poverty and the despair of the depression and the fear of World War II and the other had been raised in the post-war boom. However, there was also a matter of numbers and numbers actually turned out to matter a lot. The original Beats had been, I don't know, a few dozen people. I mean, it's a tiny number. And even when the more numerous Beatniks had joined the movement in the late 50s, there probably were not more than you know, 5,000 Beatniks in the entire United States. But now, by the mid-1960s, the number of counterculture followers had suddenly exploded into hundreds of thousands. And indeed, by the 70s, it might even have been as many as three or four million. It was, you know, really large numbers of people. The numbers mattered. Whereas the Beats had felt oppressed and rejected by society, and the Beatniks had shared that, the hippies were numerous enough that they were confident that they could actually go out and create their own society, their own counterculture. I mean, why pay attention to the rest of society if you disapprove of it or dislike it? Just withdraw and go off on your own and create your own society, your own counterculture. And indeed, in most large American cities, there were entire hippie neighborhoods. You know, in Seattle, the big hippie neighborhood was Fremont. 
It had the cheapest rent. That's why it was the hippie neighborhood. Hippie neighborhoods and cheap rent always went together. And unlike Greenwich Village or North Beach, many of these districts got little attention from tourists. I mean, that's understandable because can you imagine tourists actually going to Fremont? Well, anyway, I don't think anybody did. <clears throat> Hippies did not care to play to tourists. That was another difference. The, the Beats and the Beatniks uh, had been interested in you know, showing themselves off. I mean, rent a Beatnik required not only someone to rent the Beatnik, it also required someone to uh, be willing to be rented. But hippies didn't, instead wanted to develop their own communities where different occupations would fit in. And whereas the original Beats had been writers, very few hippies cared much about writing. And even fewer actually wrote anything. And you, know, you can try to find hippie writings, and there just aren't a lot. One can cite, perhaps, Ken Kesey's novels, except that Kesey is not really a hippie. He's like a guru to hippies. He's older. He's an older generation. The Beats had been, to some extent, a literary movement. But the hippies were more of a cultural movement that did not include literature. Uh, they were a social movement, too, perhaps. In some ways, the hippies depended upon the beat writers, whom they continued to honor, uh, and so they did not need to create the philosophical or literary underpinnings for their movement uh, the way that uh, you know, the beats had felt a necessity to have a, a, a philosophical underpinning that was expressed in the writings. The Beats had already done that, and so the hippies didn't need to do that. Large numbers, as I said, mattered. The hippies felt a certain confidence that they were right, and that that came from the fact that they could look around and see lots of other people who looked just like themselves. The Beats had had to justify themselves, even to themselves, with their writings, in part because their small numbers left them so psychologically vulnerable, wondering about their own true significance. It was hard to believe in something if there were only six other people who believed it. <laughs> you know, the numbers actually do make a difference. Third, the psychological difference between beats and hippies is important. If the beats were gloomy, the hippies were hopeful. And whereas the beats wore old clothes and you know, secondhand clothes that cost almost nothing, or could be gotten for free perhaps, and drab colors, the hippies wore bright colored clothes, often elaborately decorated. Hippie clothing was often expensive. This wasn't always true, of course, but it certainly could be. There were, hippies were always designed to be seen. They liked being noticed, and you know, wearing bright-colored clothes was one way to be seen. Beads, handmade jewelry, tie-dyed bandanas made a statement. Tight-fitting jeans celebrated the body. If hippies were partly about thumbing noses at older generations, Perhaps tight jeans were also important because older people didn't wear such clothes and maybe actually wouldn't want to <laughs> wear such clothes in any case. Finally, much hippie dress was unisexual. This was certainly a fact that the older generation noticed. In a way, the unisex dress of hippies announced the coming of women's liberation, including the liberation from the skirt. <laughs> so this is where, where that comes in. Like the Beats, hippies wore long hair, perhaps even longer than the hair that the Beats had worn. And this is true for both hippie women and hippie men. If Beats preferred to be left alone, hippies announced their presence to the whole society, and I think it's fair to say that hippies were, in fact, exhibitionists. Beats and hippies had different music. This turned out to be one of the really important differences. Interest in jazz had declined in the late 1950s. There's a lot of speculation about why that happens. 
perhaps there were fewer, fewer talented jazz performers in the late 50s than earlier. I don't know. It's an interesting question, but for some reason there wasn't as much interest. In the 60s, rock and roll had ruled, and hippies adopted and adapted the new music and created their own, their own particular version of rock and roll. The Beats never did accept rock and roll, and that was an important distinction. Jack Kerouac remained a lifelong jazz fan, denounced rock and roll, and despised hippies, and said so publicly. You know, he says, I'm, not, I'm no hippie. I, I, mean, I hate those people. He was very reactionary, right? The more accommodating Allen Ginsberg found rock and roll intriguing but difficult to understand. Ginsburg really couldn't get into the spirit of rock and roll, even though he tried to do so. Ginsburg did, however, recognize that the new music was important to the hippies, so he understands that, and he thought that the rise of the new music itself indicated the importance of the hippies, and it's certainly true that whenever there's a cultural change, there will be a new music. You can go back throughout history, and you'll find that cultural change and music Always, you know, the change in music and the change in culture always go together. There's a reason for that, of course. Well, many people have speculated that, you know, why, why were the hippies wearing bright clothes and listening to rock music? Maybe the reason was LSD. <laughs> Beats and hippies had different drugs, although this was in part due to different circumstances. That is, the Beats might have liked LSD, they just didn't have any because it basically didn't exist or it wasn't available, put it that way. Beats had used alcohol, and of course, especially Kerouac, who loved cheap red wine and ended up dying as an alcoholic. But the Beats had also experimented with many types of pills and many other kinds of drugs, you know, especially Allen Ginsberg was a great experimenter. And then, of course, Bill Burroughs ended up as a heroin addict, and the Beats had actually you know, taken up heroin in a number of cases. The Beats had regularly smoked marijuana, especially, I think, in New York City, which seemed to have more access to marijuana than a lot of other places, uh, which they called reefer or pot. Hippies also were light users of alcohol and smoked even more pot. And so the alcohol continues, but not with as much emphasis, and the marijuana becomes more important. But hippies were not likely to use heroin, which was more widely understood to be deadly. Uh, there was a lot greater understanding of the dangers of heroin in the 1960s than in the 1940s. But instead, hippies turned to the fairly new chemical psychedelic drug, LSD. LSD had been invented accidentally in 1943 in Switzerland by a chemist named Albert Hoffman, who worked for a drug company called Sandoz. Uh, he got a drop on his uh, wrist and then rode the bicycle home. <laughs> the world's first LSD trip, he practically fell off the bicycle as a result. <laughs> but he said, aha, this drug is really potent. One little drop does this. Hmm, we need to research this further. All during the 50s, Sandoz, the manufacturer, the world's only manufacturer, supplied free samples of LSD to researchers all over the world to try to figure out if LSD had any use at all. Uh, if Sandoz could find there was some useful purpose for it, boy, they could make a lot of money out of this. So they were looking at this as a commercial proposition. And indeed, it was for a time in the 50s thought that LSD might be useful to treat mental illness. Well, it turned out to be not true, but it was an interesting theory. It was also, for a while, uh, thought to be possible that it would be a truth serum. 
And the CIA uh, experimented uh, on uh, using LSD for this purpose and discovered this didn't work either. So by the early 60s, the number of people in research who think that LSD has a useful purpose is really beginning to dwindle. But that doesn't mean that LSD doesn't have a purpose. It's just not a scientific medical purpose or a, you know, it's, it's recreation. It's fun, right? That's, that's how it changes. To many hippies, being a hippie was about using LSD and seeking to find spiritual truth through LSD trips. Uh, there was a sociologist who interviewed people in the Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco uh, in 1967 and found that uh, all but one of the, I think, 70 uh, hippies that he interviewed uh, had uh, smoked marijuana within the last 24 hours, <laughs> which tells you how much marijuana was being smoked. And all but 2 or 3%. I think it was 97% had had at least one LSD trip. So LSD and hippies really do go together. You could call it better living through chemistry, right? <laughs> LSD came about in addition to Sandoz through the influence of four people. And I'll go through each of them in a little bit. The first of these was Aldous Huxley, who's best known as the author of the novel Brave New World, uh, written before World War II. Uh, Huxley, who was nearly blind, uh, had emigrated to the United States and had become a scriptwriter in Hollywood. There was a lot more money to be made writing scripts than novels, <laughs> he found out. He loved Los Angeles because of the bright sunshine. His particular kind of blindness allowed him to see a little bit of light and a little bit. He could actually read if he had a magnifying glass and he sat outside next to the swimming pool uh, in the bright sun. So <laughs> he loved L.A. for that reason. Uh, in the 1950s, uh, he experimented with uh, mescaline, which was derived from peyote and, and LSD, and wrote the first serious book on the subject of LSD, uh, for the general reader, as opposed to science reports in science magazines. Uh, the book, of course, is Doors of Perception. And in Doors of Perception, Huxley advocated psychedelics as the way to world peace. He thought that LSD was so powerful that it would cause all of the internal mental structures of everybody in the world to be radically altered, and then peace would break out all over the world. Huxley believed that human society would be totally reorganized if the world's elite took LSD. Huxley continued to advocate LSD into the, throughout the rest of the 50s and into the early 1960s until, until he died of cancer in 1963. Huxley so impressed the rock star Jim Morrison that Morrison named his rock group The Doors in honor of Huxley's book. Huxley was smart enough to realize however, that LSD posed a threat to the existing political and social order. You know, he sees this as a radical drug that will have radical consequences, and he knows that, therefore, the people who hold power are likely to resist it. And therefore, Huxley, throughout his career, advocated that a medical model be used for research and promoting the use of LSD. If medical elites, in other words, eminent doctors could be persuaded to give LSD only to elite patients. Cary Grant, the actor, was one. There would be no crackdown by the government. The government was, or, or uh, Claire Booth Luce, the wife of the publisher of Time magazine. You know, if you had eminent people taking LSD in a medical setting 
under the advice, guidance, and care of an eminent physician, the government was not going to outlaw LSD, nor was it going to try to arrest people or anything like that, right? And Huxley's idea was that if you could spread LSD to these elites in this way, eventually LSD would be recognized for the great changes that it could bring about to the human you know, psyche, and therefore you could change the world. But Huxley warned that if LSD became too widely available and was used by too many people, there would be a backlash and the politicians would ban it, which of course is exactly what happens. The second person who promoted this in the early stage is Allen Ginsberg. Now, he never met a drug he didn't like to try the first time anyway. He sometimes you know, backed off after the first time. But Ginsberg had tried many drugs at the time he took LSD. Ironically, Allen Ginsberg got his first LSD in a government-run experiment sponsored by the Veterans Administration Hospital at Stanford University in the 1950s. <laughs> Late 1950s. Ginsburg was astonished by LSD compared to the other psychedelic drugs that he had tried, including uh, peyote, mescaline, and uh, yagi, which was a drug that came from South America. Uh, he found LSD revolutionary. He thought that if LSD uh, was used widely, that it would cause the political, social, and cultural system uh, of the United States and eventually the entire world to entirely implode. And of course, that's what the Beats had been wanting all along, ever since the 1940s. Let's change everything, right? Ginsburg, however, like Huxley, worried that a premature mass publicity for this drug would lead to a breakdown. And the whole thing would cause a crisis and would produce a big backlash. In 1960, it was Allen Ginsberg who introduced LSD to Timothy Leary. So it's not the other way around. You know. Leary was already, yeah, he was a Harvard psychology researcher at the time, and he had researched other drugs, including uh, the use of, uh, of uh, psilocybin, which was based on um, magic mushrooms. Uh, it was an artificial uh, produced version of magic mushrooms. And the psilocybin wasn't nearly as powerful as the LSD. And Ginsburg had told Leary, you need to try LSD and quit fooling around with psilocybin. It's just, you know, it's nothing compared to LSD. And Leary didn't really believe him at first. But then Ginsburg warned Leary about the political dangers of doing this. And Leary, who had no experience with politics or the media or the law the way Ginsburg did paid no attention. Remember, Ginsburg had been prosecuted for the publication of Howell uh, in a famous trial in the 1950s. So Ginsburg understood public relations and law and you know, the way that you could get into trouble pretty easily without intending it. So Leary becomes the third figure in the spread of LSD. He started giving LSD to his friends and to his graduate students and then to Harvard undergraduates. And that was the point when Harvard pulled the plug. In 1963, Harvard fired Leary for turning on undergraduates. And Leary then moved to upstate New York to an estate, Millbrook, uh, to conduct what he called LSD experiments. Uh, Millbrook was owned by one of his followers who had inherited it, uh, you know, was obviously a, an heir to a wealthy New York City fortune. Uh, Leary's experiments were rather cautious, although they were by no means serious. He was still trapped inside his own head 
in the world of the research scientist. He had been a research scientist ever since World War II, and so he had all the jargon that psychologists use, and everything had to be set up as an experiment, and you had to keep lab notes and so forth. And although he spoke that jargon, uh, his behavior became increasingly bizarre under the influence of daily LSD trips. Uh, he was taking acid every day. LSD seemed to break down inhibitions. It seemed to break up marriages. It certainly broke up his. Uh, and it led to a lot of loose sex and exhibitionist nudity, he noted. Leary liked this. Uh, he liked all the women that came to Millbrook. <laughs> he would give them LSD and they would then do whatever he wanted, right? He became a guru for the hippie movement, and he declared most famously, uh, turn on, tune in, and drop out. Uh, turning on, of course, meant taking LSD. Tuning in meant tuning in to your inner self, to the spirituality that LSD was supposed to provide, and dropping out meant quit school, quit your job, become a hippie. You know? The massive publicity that Ginsburg had warned would be trouble brought the authorities down hard on Leary, and when he and his uh, family crossed the border from Mexico into the United States, he was arrested for a possession of a small amount of marijuana, which of course they should not have had in the car, <laughs> and sentenced to 30 years in prison. <laughs> this caused him a lot of trouble. Leary is interesting because he had a natural knack for sound bites. And he would call a press conference, uh, making sure the New York Times was there, about every two weeks for about five years. And there would always be one line that would become the headline of the New York Times story. And it would be in the first paragraph, and it would be ine inevitably on page one. <laughs> so he was getting constant publicity, uh, advocating, uh, turning on, tuning in, and dropping out. The fourth person in this movement of for LSD was Ken Kesey, who can also be described as an Oregon novelist and, and author and a political libertarian with anarchist tendencies. Kesey was very proud of the fact that his ancestors had been pioneers in the West, and he thought of himself as a rugged Western pioneer. He had been in the creative writing program at Stanford University, and while there, he had worked at the nearby VA hospital, the same one, of course, where Ginsburg had gotten the LSD, and eventually he, too, had gotten put into the LSD experiment there. Now, Kesey, in college at Oregon, was a champion wrestler in top physical condition. Indeed, he almost made the U.S. Olympic team, so he was a real athlete. He was also disciplined and exceptionally self-willed, and as a writer, he had a good vocabulary for description, and unlike most users of LSD, Kesey retained a capacity for describing what was going on while he was stoned. He could at times even write while he was stoned, which no one else seemed to be able to do. The uh, doctors at the VA hospital were really fascinated with Kesey as a test case. They'd never had anybody who was able to do this. After his first book, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was partly written under the influence of LSD, was a bestseller. Kesey bought a house in the hills behind Stanford University at La Honda and began to experiment with LSD uh, on his own. So this is in the early 60s. Kesey almost immediately grasps that if you're going to have a drug that's as powerful as LSD, you need to have a music that goes with it. And so he hires a musician, a young folk singer named Jerry Garcia, to invent the music. Now, Garcia tried classical music, didn't work, 
tried jazz, didn't work, tried folk music, didn't work at all. And then Garcia came up with rock. <laughs> so this is how Jerry Garcia ends up founding the Grateful Dead. It all comes out of uh, these experiments with mixing LSD and music together uh, up at Kesey's house in La Honda. Like Aldous Huxley and Ginsburg, uh, Kesey understood the, the revolutionary uh, potential of LSD, but he rejected their approach. Kesey believed that a crackdown against LSD was inevitable. He thought the best chance to get LSD accepted was to flood the country so fast with LSD that the authorities wouldn't be able to crack down on it because it would be everywhere. And so in 1965, he began to stage his acid tests in San Francisco. At the acid tests, who were lured there by the music, uh, the participants were given a chance to take LSD uh, at the concert. And the Jefferson Airplane showed up. Their name stood for Free Trip, right? <laughs> And in 1965 and 66, the San Francisco bands, the Grateful Dead, the Jefferson Airplane, Janis Joplin and Big Brother, Moby Dick and Quick Civil Messenger Service rose to prominence. While LSD was no longer distributed free at the concerts, many concert goers arrived already stoned. And so LSD became rampant in the Bay Area in 1966 until the state of California and the U.S. government both banned it in October of 1966. It remained available, but riskier after that, because you never knew about the safety of it. All of this would lead to the summer of love in San Francisco in 1967, 50 years ago. About 75,000 young people, some of them high school students, some of them college students, converged on the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco during that summer the new hippie hangout district, not the North Beach area, because the North Beach area, the rents were too high. <laughs> in a hit single, Scott McKenzie had sung, If You Go to San Francisco, Wear Flowers in Your Hair, in May of 1967. So that actually stimulated people to go there, right? There were free concerts by the leading bands in nearby Golden Gate Park, and there was a lot of marijuana and LSD to be scored in the hate. Indeed, any young person with long hair walking down the sidewalk would be offered drugs at least once a block. I mean, it was impossible to escape. Being a hippie turned out to be about three things, rock music, drugs, and sex. And there was plenty of sex in the hate as well, or at least there was a lot of talk about sex. Well, maybe there was plenty of sex because the rate of sexually transmitted diseases went way up in San Francisco that year. A year later, most of the hippies were gone from San Francisco. The hate was overrun with heroin and crime. Indeed, the heroin addicts had eaten all of the neighborhood's cats. Think about that. Some of the hippies fled to Berkeley, where they continued to live in the 70s, but others also moved out of town to quieter places, perhaps to Mendocino County, where you could grow your own marijuana, right? <laughs> the biggest cash crop in Mendocino County, marijuana. Uh, rural communes became the new thing for the counterculture in the 70s. And by the 70s, there are hundreds of thousands of people living in, in rural communes. So the hippies left the cities and moved to the country, partly because of rising rents and partly because they wanted to escape their, their neighbors who were irritated with them and you know, so forth. They also tried to grow you know, food in these rural communes. Meanwhile, the counterculture became commercialized in the 70s, and 
one find, you know, finds co-optation going on, especially, of course, in the music industry. It was the first one where this happened. Once you had big money, I mean, it was going to bring in people with money. And at first, the music industry tried to create their own rock groups who would, that would be less drug-oriented and easier to manage and cheaper. But the major groups had more talent, and the audience cared about the talent. And in the end, the recording companies had to capitulate with huge sums of money and promises of artistic freedom. Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead was the first band to hold out for a record contract under which they got to decide who the recording engineer would be, and they got total approval of the content of the album. It mattered. It mattered a lot. It changed the way music was done. The San Francisco bands were among the first to obtain this kind of artistic freedom. The albums were mostly recorded, by the way, in Los Angeles, not in New York, because the recording engineers in Los Angeles were cool. The ones in New York were stodgy <laughs> and old-fashioned. As long as drugs were illegal, there was no way to commercialize the hippie drug market. But hippies also had other new ideas, ideas about food. They were hostile to large-scale corporations. They disliked processed food. They were suspicious of supermarkets. Many became vegetarians. Many others declared themselves in favor of organic food, and they grew organic food, and they favored natural foods as well. In Vermont, Ben and Jerry cashed in on the demand for natural ice cream and made a lot of Vermont dairy farmers happy in the process. And the whole politics of Vermont changed from conservative Republican to liberal Democrat because of Ben and Jerry. Very interesting story. You know, these two Jewish guys from Brooklyn who go up to Vermont and sort of reform the whole state all around ice cream, which is weird. Although Ben & Jerry was a capitalist business, it was small business. It was not a big business, and it was not part of any conglomerate. And the company donated generously to Vermont charities. In Boulder, Colorado, Celestial Seasons started producing herbal tea, originally picked wild in the mountains behind Boulder, eventually becoming one of Colorado's largest companies. Co-op grocery stores sprang up in hippie neighborhoods in cities. Often, the produce would come in from hippie-owned farms that were outside of town. And while most of these ultimately disappeared, at least some survived, including, of course, the PCC, the Puget Consumer Co-op, in Seattle. The, healthy, the health industry it can also be traced to the 60s. Fitness centers, exercise classes, the disapproval of tobacco and alcohol, the rise of dance as a form of entertainment. All of this was, of course, about body worship, an idea that any hippie would recognize. Hippies, however, are going to be in a real crisis when they reach the age where they need nursing home care. Hmm. In the hippie view of the world, hippies never get old, which is really fascinating. But I'm proposing that there be a chain of cemeteries called Woodstock. <laughs> and at Woodstock Cemetery, the music of Woodstock will be played forever <laughs> in the background, right? <laughs> Well, there's one other way in which uh, the counterculture also figured, and that is the invention of the personal computer. The personal computer was invented in Menlo Park, California, just six blocks away from where Jerry Garcia lived when he was doing The Grateful Dead. And uh, in, it soon attracted the attention of a young teenage uh, hippie by the name of Steve Jobs. And so Apple Computer actually emerges uh, out of the counterculture. But what is the connection? At the time, the only computers that anybody had were IBM or Honeywell or other major corporations. Uh, and they sold computers for millions and millions of dollars. So only large government 
agencies or large corporations could afford to have a computer. The vision of the personal computer was that everyone in the world could have a personal computer, that each person in the world could be empowered by a tremendous amount of computing power by having that. You know, and today's cell phones, of course, have more power on them than, you know, than the giant computers did in, in the 1960s. And Steve Jobs really did uh, you know, follow that vision. Uh, he was from the Bay Area. He was very much a part of the counterculture of the Bay Area. He went to Reed College for one semester, dropped out, uh, went to India, lived in India for eight months, became a Buddhist, brought his Buddhist guru back to San Jose. You can see the monastery up above the, uh, the interstate in San Jose to this day. And uh, so the personal computer is the ultimate legacy of the counterculture. <laughs> and I'm going to stop with that.